Dr. Isaac, dial zero. The Brent Community Healthcare System presents Hospital Insider, the podcast. Your host is Gary Chalk, the retired director of public affairs for the Brandt Community Healthcare System, a newspaper columnist, and former radio broadcaster. The podcast features conversations with members of the medical staff, the caregivers, volunteers, the leadership team, and donors of the Brantford General Hospital and the Willett Hospital in Paris. Listening to Hospital Insider, the podcast, will inform and educate you about hospital care. So please share this podcast with your family and friends and encourage them to subscribe as well. Remember, if it has to do with hospital care in Brantford, Paris, and throughout Brant County, we will talk about it on Hospital Insider, the podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number seven of Hospital Insider, the podcast. I'm Gary Chalk. Our topic today, it's timely. Believe me, this is mid to late January that we're recording today's podcast, and the media is awash with the topic of hospital overcrowding. And I think to uh, maybe perhaps blow our own horn, not only are we timely, but I think we're going to give our listeners to this podcast a little more information about why patients are being cared for in hospital corridors, and also what one hospital is doing, and perhaps others are, are doing something similar. The guests uh, in the studio from the Brand Community Healthcare System, Dr. Rudy Goyle, he is the Chief of Hospital-Based Medicine, and also Shannon Nelson, who is the Patient Flow Coordinator. So to Shannon and to Rudy, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. We're glad you took a little time away from your extremely busy schedules <laughs> to uh, talk about this topic. So before we dive into the topic of hospital overcrowding, Let's learn a little bit about our, our two experts today. Dr. Goyle attended Queen's University and also McMaster before completing his residency at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. Came to Brantford General a little over two years ago now. Dr. Goyle was raised in Waterloo. His father studied for his PhD. His sister is also a physician. Obviously, Rudy, your parents believe in the value of education. Why did you become a physician? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think it was really a, a couple of things. Uh, I've always sort of wanted a career where I could work with people, and, and I've always seen um, medicine as a way that I can serve patients, but also serve my community, and that's always been very important to me. Um, I think in addition to uh, the medical care that we provide, uh, I th- what, what really appeals to me about a career in medicine is that uh, you can serve your patients and you can serve your community in, in so many different ways. I mean, you can you can provide care at the bedside, you can talk to families and guide them through these really sort of vulnerable moments that they're going through, um, but you can also make an impact uh, as a leader, you can make an impact um, in policy, you can make an impact in education. Um, and, uh, you know, I think all physicians in, in some way or the other are leaders in their communities. And I think the opportunity to serve in many different facets in the community really was, was something that appealed to me from, from pretty early on. It's interesting that medicine is so much more than perhaps many in the general public really perceive yeah, it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Our second guest, Shannon Nelson. Shannon was raised in Sarnia as an undergraduate degree and a postgraduate degree in uh, gerontology and social work. Currently, more education, completing her <laughs> master's degree in health management. Before coming to Brantford General, Shannon worked in Toronto at a couple of hospitals there, Halton Healthcare, and also St. Joseph's Hospital in Toronto. In each hospital, Shannon helped patients transition throughout the continuum of care, and she also teaches in the gerontology program at Sheridan College. Same question for you, Shannon, is uh, Dr. Goyle. What is it about your job that really attracted you to it many, many years ago? 
Yeah, well, um, I actually started working in healthcare at 14 years old in a long-term care home, believe it or not. Um, So I always knew that healthcare was going to be the direction that my career went. Um, I started obviously working in long-term care. And then from there, after completing my um, formal education, uh, an opportunity knocked um, to transition out of uh, long-term care into acute care. And that's what brought me to University Health Network in Toronto, where I was the first alternate level of care patient flow specialist that they brought on. Um, And the reason why they chose me is because a lot of the alternate level of care patients in hospital are geriatric. Um, And so with my social work background and being able to navigate the continuum of care and being able to be that supportive um, listening ear to families and patients and to help them navigate through the very, very complex system that, you know, we have to um, navigate through on a, on a regular basis. Um, The being aligned with um, patient flow as an alternate alternate level of care specialist um, brought me to really understanding the ins and outs of the complex system that um, flowing patients throughout the hospital can be, um, in addition to um, not flowing them just through the hospital, but flowing them out of the hospital as well. Um, So being aligned with flow has been something that I've been doing for the last eight years of my life. And um, now I find myself here at Brantford doing the same thing um, at a scale, um, at a community level, as opposed to a large teaching organization. It's it's a very different um, experience, but ultimately that's sort of what's brought me here today. And as we get into the, the meat of the topic here today, what will be interesting is that it's all about patient flow and the fact that you're truly one of the pioneers in this aspect of health care and hospitals, it, you, you do bring a lot of experience and a, and a great perspective. Dr. Goyle, you're the chief of hospital-based medicine, which means that you lead a group of about maybe 25 physicians who are referred to as hospitalists. What is hospital-based medicine and what is a hospitalist? Sure, yeah. So the department, essentially the title refers to physicians who are, uh, or departments that are primarily uh, based out of our Brantford General Hospital site. So that includes our hospitalist group, that includes our palliative care group, uh, our geriatric uh, medicine physicians, and our family docs who uh, who have some uh, courtesy privileges in the hospital. Um, as far as what is a hospitalist, essentially a hospitalist is a physician who looks after um, a general medical patient that's been admitted to hospital, uh, and that could be for any number of medical conditions. So uh, typically, a hospitalist would see uh, patients who have pneumonia, who have congestive heart failure, who have COPD, who have strokes, um, but then we also look after patients who have less acute medical problems and may be admitted to a rehab program uh, or a complex care program. Uh, we also assist in the care of patients who are admitted for mental health reasons or for uh, surgical reasons. Um, so the hospitalists, um, we see sort of a variety of patients throughout the hospital and, uh, uh, and, and that really, you know, that gives us a broad sense of um, uh, some of these really complex flow issues that we're going to talk about. Certainly. And not so long ago, family physicians routinely had privileges in hospitals and came to see their patients when they were there. It's another entire topic why, for the most part, that that isn't the system that they they use anymore. Uh, but, But what is a patient you would not care for? So the patients we wouldn't be looking after are any surgical patients would be looked after by their surgeon. Uh, Any patient that's admitted to the intensive care unit would not be looked after by a hospitalist. Any patient that's admitted to a 
into our telemetry floor, which is our cardiology floor, uh, would not be looked after by a hospitalist. And then uh, anybody who's, uh, again, a, a mental health patient uh, who's admitted to our mental health unit would be looked after by one of our psychiatrists. Over to you, Shannon. Healthcare, as we're starting to learn here quickly, very complex, can be confusing, and probably, quite honestly, scary for patients at that vulnerable time in their lives and for their families. You told me uh, once when we were talking before, Shannon, that uh, uh, your passion is understanding the barriers and the gaps in the healthcare system and helping people transition throughout their continuum of care. We'll get specific later, but in general terms, what are those gaps and barriers that patients and their families would encounter? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I think first and foremost, it would be opportunities within the community, right? So when you have a patient who comes in and they perhaps have had something detrimental happen to their health where they're not able to return to their home environment for whatever reason, and whatever home looks like is different for everyone. Um, and I guess we put a lot of emphasis on transitioning patients out of the hospital, but what do you do when there aren't enough resources to transfer, to transfer that patient out to, to their home? Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest barriers, I would say, is the number of, of resources that we have available to us in our community. Um, resources being personal support workers, long-term care beds, um, you know, any type of community support services that you could think of, including right down to Meals on Wheels services. How are people getting their groceries? That type of thing. And if somebody has had something happen to them that's so detrimental that, you know, there are no amount of resources that could support them, then we find that patients end up waiting in hospital for extended lengths of time um, for that specific type of um, care that they require to become available to them to be able to transition out. So, Resources, I think, bottom line, are, are um, limited for us. And um, I think another barrier would be patients who don't have a social system, who don't have family members who can advocate for them when they're not able to advocate for themselves. You know, we often um, find people who just don't have that social network or financial um, resource uh, as well. As you know, living in a retirement home or a long-term care home costs substantial amount of money. Um, and unless you've done significant financial planning over the course of your life, you know, you're not going to be able to afford five or $8,000 a month to be living in a retirement home. So um, resources, finances, social situations, um, and, you know, really the, the area of the province that we live in too doesn't have as many of the resources as say downtown Toronto would have. So it's, um, yeah, it all, it all boils down to the resources that we have available to us. So we said at the outset, the topic is as much in the news today is about hospitals, hallway corridors where patients frequently are receiving care. So let's uh, dive into that right now. And I'm going to try to paint the picture here as the groundwork, the framework, and I'm, I'm pretty accurate, or pretty sure I'm accurate here, but one factor that contributes to hallway medicine or hallway healthcare is we're an aging society. The baby boomers are now hitting the system. More people are getting older, more people living come to uh, longer ages, they're more coming to the hospitals now. But there's another major factor, and this is patients who are in the hospitals currently, they've gone through their, their episodic treatment within the acute care facility, and they're ready to go to their next step of the journey. It may be home, it may be a transitional bed somewhere in the community, it may be to a long-term care facility, a nursing home. But those people can't go to that facility until a bed there opens up 
And as a result, they stay in the hospital, rightfully so, and their term is ALC, alternate level of care. So that's the first factor that we'll put on the table. Dr. Goyle, from a, a physician's perspective, Obviously, when the hospital care portion has been completed, it's best for them to move on, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. absolutely. Reasons being? So there are a few very important reasons uh, why we encourage or we, we, um, we never want patients who don't need to be in hospital to stay in hospital. Uh, I think, you know, the hospital is a great place to be when you need care, when you have an acute issue and you need it addressed and you need the care that the team can provide. But once that is completed, um, we never want patients who don't need care to remain in hospital. Um, an important reason is uh, for concerns around infection. We know that the rates of antibiotic-resistant and other drug-resistant organisms are rising, and they are certainly rising within hospital environments, particularly for patients who are elderly or may have immune system issues. They are uh, especially vulnerable to contracting one of these infections. We also know that patients who are elderly who have a number of other medical problems are vulnerable to things like delirium, where they may get confused and uh, unsure of their surroundings due to the new environment that a hospital uh, that a hospital uh, provides, um, and, and that's due to a number of things. They may not be sleeping as well in the hospital because it's so busy. There's uh, things going on at all all hours of the night. Uh, their uh, their sleep wake cycles are going to be disrupted for that reason, um, and and all of these things um, can can lead to increased rates of delirium. We know that. Patients who are elderly are at an increased risk for falls in hospital. That can lead to fractures uh, and further, you know, need for further intervention with surgery and and a longer hospitalization. Um, so, you know, there's a number of reasons why we always encourage patients who are able to to, to get home once they're done that acute acute phase of their treatment, um, because we know that keeping them in hospital leads to many more problems down the road. Now, to be fair, we do need to to. Uh to report that the government is moving on this file. There's no doubt about that. They've uh, announced the opening of more long-term care bed facilities. I know that's happening right here in Brantford. I'm aware of some of those that are, are being uh, established now and others that are in the works. It takes time, of course. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. That's from a positive perspective. But while we wait for more long-term care beds, it ex examines some of the numbers. A recent report indicated that Ontario, ALC, alternate level of care patients, those who are waiting to be discharged to an appropriate bed in the community, they occupy approximately 16% of hospital days and the beds that are available in community care, in acute care hospitals across the uh, province. And from my understanding, and, and Shannon will enlighten us with some of these numbers, we're certainly in locally at least at that 16% number. We're actually at 22% today. 22% yeah, today. It, it varies. ALC patients so in there hospital you go. currently. As we speak, we're at 22%. Now, some other numbers. Approximately 70,000 people will come to the BGH Emergency Department this year alone. Many will be admitted. The hospital has, to start with, 295 beds. So it means when those beds are full, patients starting in the emergency room and elsewhere, are going to be now treated in corridors. If the 16% of the beds of the BGH are occupied by ALC patients, and it's fluctuating, today it's 22%, those are the patients who are waiting to be discharged. Well, now instead of 295 beds, we're down to 235 beds, mm -hmm, exactly. something in that nature. 
But also, as I said, it's not just the 16%, it may be the 22%. Houston, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Insert Guelph, you have a problem. (laughs) Cambridge, Hamilton, we've all got a problem. It's just not local. So let's put some perspective. I know you've got a fistful of charts there. Briefly, you're saying today we're at 22%. For ALC, yeah. For ALC patients. And you can't just put any patient in any bed. For example, a person with a stroke has to go to the stroke unit. Mm -hmm. An individual in uh, um, dire straits is probably headed to the critical care unit. So there are a number of those beds that more or less are removed out of the picture as well. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. It must be an incredible challenge. Yeah, actually, it's it's uh, similar to playing about six games of Tetris at once <laughs> over a 12-hour shift. You're trying to balance all of the demands across the organization. Every service, um, every unit, um, and every patient has unique nuances to, you know, what you need to factor in when it comes to placing a patient. And my philosophy, and it has been for, for many years, is the right patient needs to go to the right bed at the right time. And I always say right on, because when you get that right patient in the right bed, you know that they're getting the most optimal care that they can be receiving in one of the most, you know, in crisis, usually, you know, most of the time patients come to hospital because they are in, you know, in a crisis situation. Um, and I guess in going back to your comment about n- not every patient being appropriate for every bed, Oftentimes, we are having to off-service medical patients to the surgical program, which could mean that we're having to block a bed for a patient that requires surgery, or we're off-servicing medicine patients to the maternity ward because there are no medicine beds in order to accommodate them. Um, It's really um, making sure that you're factoring in all of their acute medical needs um, while also making sure that the unit that's accepting that patient is able to support um, whatever needs it is that they have. We factor in everything from diagnoses to age to um, length of stay to, you know, projected discharge date. and, 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 of course, the staffing um, component comes in there um, very heavily as well. And I guess another one of the big um, components that we have to factor in is infection control, um, infection control aspect to all of this. Um, you know, currently we have a total of, I think, 58 isolated patients across the organization. Some of the specific um, isolation barriers, you can cohort specific um, patients together. Other patients require private room only. Uh, you know, we often have families that come in to say, well, I have private coverage. Well, that's great that you have private coverage and we would love to give you a private room, but unfortunately all of our private rooms are occupied by patients who require that private room for an isolation reason. Um, We do our very best to accommodate those types of things, but 99% of the time, it's it's really not possible for us, so. Okay, what's interesting about this is that, and I know that your day is a 12-hour day, on paper, in theory. (laughs) Dr. Goyle, I'm sure you're working those hours as well. So a typical day, uh, as I understand it, you come in, you quickly, probably even before you come in at home, Go online, check and see what the day is going to look for. It's a bad habit, but I sure do. That's right. See what's (laughs) happened during the course of the night, what the emergency room looks like, and how many people are are currently waiting, how many ALC patients are still waiting for that bed that they can leave to be discharged from a hospital. So you arrive, and at 10.45 in the morning, there's a big meeting. Talk to me about who goes to that meeting and what you do. Absolutely. So the 10.45 bed meeting brings everyone from all walks of life. We have leadership, uh, executive leadership. Uh, We've got um, all of the clinical managers from all of the units. We have the housekeeping supervisors. We have 
Um, oh, who am I missing? Uh, we sometimes we have physicians uh, who attend. Uh, it's it's really anybody who is involved directly with flowing patients throughout the hospital. I would say attendance is probably about thirty five to forty people a, a day who and come to that morning meeting. And mandator- it's obviously mandatory. These people have to be there. And the first thing they guess they do is they put their cards in the table. Absolutely. Here's the, what I'm facing today. Exactly. So we start by sort of presenting the picture of what's going on in the emerge. And then from there, we talk about critical care, um, you know, balancing volumes and, and projected discharges from the emergency department. Um, and then from critical care, we want to know how many patients uh, need to be transferred out of the critical care unit because they no longer require that level of, of um, care. And then the next thing we break down is the number of discharges from the inpatient units that we're projecting. And uh, it's a lot of um, moving parts and and a lot of, you know, breaking down of numbers because say you've got, let's just give it a a good number. You've got 18 patients in the eMERGE and you've only got 10 projected discharges. Then you know that you're at a deficit of eight beds for that day. Those are good numbers. You know, sometimes we're working at, um, you know, 29 patients in the eMERGE and maybe only seven potential discharges. So you're, you're really trying to um, balance where the needs are. You also have to factor in inter-unit transfers. Uh, If you're transferring somebody from a medicine floor to a specialty program, Um, whether that be a a rehab bed or to the stroke unit. Um, There's all kinds of movement that happens uh, across the organization. But for the most part in those bed meetings, we're trying to figure out where we're going to be at the end of the day. Um, And what I mean by where we're going to be, how many patients are going to be left in the eMERGE um, at the end of the day. And then we also factor in (laughs) length of stay. So how long people are waiting in the eMERGE. We try to prioritize the people that have been down the longest um, as well as the patients that are the, the most acute. Um, so as I said, going back to that six games of Tetris at a time, the, the bed meeting is very much like that. You're trying to move all of the pieces of the puzzle uh, to make the most sense. So. Okay, so the meeting ends. Everyone has their marching orders. They go back. They know that later in the afternoon they're going to reconvene to see what the progress has been and what what the rest of the day and the evening potentially looks like. But then the unknown happens. Healthcare workers, like everybody else, can, can become ill. They, they require vacations. Mm-hmm. And they work in a stressful environment, an area where there are lots of germs and people are ill now, and you have a shortage of staff. What, what does that do to the overall picture? Wow, yes. So, I mean, we can receive sick calls at any time of day. So when you think in the morning that everything's fine, we're going to be able to maintain a specific census on a unit into the night shift, you'll get a sick call at four o'clock in the afternoon. And all of a sudden now the census of that unit can't be what it is. So you're having to claw back decisions that are have been made already for the day um, because you're trying to balance that staff to patient ratio and making sure that you're mitigating as much risk as, as you possibly can. There are always patients coming into the eMERGE and and we're always needing to explore how we can flow those patients out and up. It's coming up with going back to your point about hallway medicine. That's when we are placing patients in um, what we call unconventional spaces. Um, so that can mean hallway spaces. That can mean opening up temporary transitional flow. Uh, we're currently calling it a flex unit of 10 beds. Um, you know, we're, we're every single day trying to think outside of the box and coming up with strategic ways of thinking, um, and also exploring what other organizations are doing because they have other organizations are doing things really well and, you know, we can always learn from what other organizations are doing. Exactly. So next time I'm in the hospital and I see somebody talking on the phone, a staff member, I don't complain about they're talking on the phone. 
who they're probably talking to is Dr. Goyle or you, Shannon, or another unit or somebody thinking, what are we trying to do? Okay, so the meeting ends, the day progresses, things continue to evolve, and you make progress. You may have a few uh, sidesteps, but eventually later in the afternoon, it's time to reconvene. Mm -hmm. What happens then? So second bed meeting happens at three o'clock in the afternoon, and depending on how the day has progressed, um, you know, we'll either have more in attendance or fewer. Because if the day is is looking reasonable, um, you know, then it then you know executive leadership maybe can leave it to the hands of management um, and you know the coordinators and that type of thing to sort of see us into the evening. However, if we're still not looking great, and a number of the predicted discharges that were identified in morning bed meeting have fallen through for whatever reason. The patient has, you know, still requires a couple of days of monitoring, that type of thing. All kinds of things can happen uh, as to why a patient doesn't end up getting discharged. Um, You know, then we have to create a contingency plan going into the night. Well, if this doesn't happen, then we do this. If that doesn't happen, then we do that. It's a lot of um, creative strategizing um, as we head into the evening. And ideally, you know, our target is to have less than 10 patients remaining in the eMERGE. But I would say, especially at this time of year, while we're in the thick of flu season, it's very unlikely that we're even going to see maybe even less than 15 in the eMERGE um, when our numbers are, you know, what we're operating with. And going back to the comment, doesn't matter how many patients you flow up to the unit, just as many patients are being admitted as you're moving patients up. So so all during this day, you've been pulling your hair out. Back to Dr. <laughs> Goyle. Uh, Shannon, stop calling me. <laughs> because you're, like you're having to provide a medical opinion and saying right. no. right. We anticipated this patient would be ready for discharge. Mm-hmm. No, it can't mm-hmm. happen now. And right. you have to be on top of that with the patients, their families, and the other physicians. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a balancing act. Uh, we, we, our number one priority for all of our patients, regardless of where they are in the hospital, whether it's the eMERGE hallway, whether it's the medical unit, whether it's the ALC uh, unit, uh, is to provide high-quality care. Uh, and And... I think every physician that works at BCHS is committed to providing that high-quality care, but we know that it's very challenging and it's frustra- it's very, very frustrating for us as well to, to try and provide care in these sorts of environments where you don't have privacy, where you don't have uh, the resources that you need, um, and we, we hear our patients' frustration on that every single day. Um, so it, with that in mind, you know, our goal is to provide that care while balancing the needs of, of, of every patient. We know that the patients who are in the hallway need to get moved up to a bed. And in order for that to happen, we need to try and discharge the patients who are ready for discharge. In that respect, we, we collaborate with our teams. We, co- we work very closely with our patient flow coordinator team. We work with our nursing staff. We work with our managers to identify those patients who are ready for discharge and try to organize those discharge plans so that they can happen in, a, in an efficient manner uh, so we can get those patients up out of the hallway. Um, now, of course, that doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't, uh, we... We are creative. We, we try to be as innovative as possible. We work with our families. We work with our uh, patients because many times they, they understand the pressures we're under and they don't want to be in hospital. Um, but it is sort of that daily balancing act to provide the care, but also manage the needs of, of every patient in the organization. So we've had the morning bed management meeting. We've had the late afternoon bed management meeting. Nine o'clock at night, you two are trying to go home, and you make one final check. 
everything is where it can be. There are tentative plans that are available through the middle of the night as things continue to, to evolve. How on earth do you fall asleep when you get home? You know, they talk about <laughs> talking sheep, uh, counting sheep. I think you people probably count beds. You've got to be able to turn it off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's tough because I think most people that work in healthcare really do feel responsible to the patients, and it's hard to leave that behind. And going home, having access on the computer to the systems in, in the hospital, it's it's often hard to prevent yourself from logging in and seeing what things are looking like. And so tempting. Yeah, and you know, it's, you know, all these patients have come in and just, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do? And, you know, people are texting each other after work. It's, it's tough, but um, we know that ultimately, again, you know, our goal is to provide that high quality care and, and we have to work together to make that happen. But uh, yeah, it's hard to turn it off sometimes. <laughs> well, everybody, I'm, I'm sure, most everybody checks their phone before they go to bed. And they're checking for messages and emails yeah. and texts and things of this nature, and which is probably just pretty good news. What you're checking is just going to motivate the brain to keep going, and you're, right. you're trying to turn it off at that point in time. You said uh, New Year's Day, I think, was a pretty, pretty bad day. Yeah, New Year's Day, um, I think I actually have some numbers here. New Year's Day, we saw upwards of 192 patients through our emergency department. Or sorry, my mistake, 197 um, patients. And uh, just so everybody knows, an average day would be about 170 patients. So when we see those incredible volumes coming through the eMERGE, um, you know, this is a combination of people that have just come to the emergency room to be treated for, you know, uh, a headache or a cold, but also, you know, the sickest of the sick who end up becoming admitted. Um, but yeah, when when you've got these kinds of astronomical volumes, it's, you know, that whole all hands on deck uh, mentality is very real. You, you are including everybody right down to the housekeeper um, when it comes to balancing the amount of resources that you have uh, available to you. Um, and then on on New Year's Day, actually, we opened up that flex space that I was telling you about, those non-traditional um, beds. And it was actually, it's an extension of our pediatric unit, which, you know, these are beds that are typically used for other things on a, on a regular basis. But, you know, when situations are as dire as they were on that particular day, uh, we were pulling housekeeping staff. We were calling um, for uh, supply carts to be delivered. We were having to arrange last-minute staffing, um, you know, in order to be able to even open the unit, you have to have a, a couple of registered um, nurses that are going to be able to work there. And, and it is very much uh, non-traditional space. It it's, doesn't have a unit clerk. It doesn't have a nursing station. Um, it, the, the rooms are, are, are hospital rooms. They are, but it's, it's not a regular um, hospital unit that you would see on, on any of our regular uh, medicine floors. So that non-traditional space that we're working with. I can recall before I retired going to those bed management meetings and the environmental service staff, the housekeepers, the people that go in, there are so many things floating through a hospital and cleaning those rooms and the process that they go through. From the pharmacy, making sure medications are available. From the Absolutely. HR department, let's make sure we have the staff. Where are the physicians? Yep. It goes on and on and on. You talk about it as 
playing 10 games of Tetris all at the same time. <laughs> all I can think of is that little game I used to play with my son, uh, uh, Whack-A-Mole. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one, right. One pop up one over here. Yeah, That's we were right. just or saying that would... the other day, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Just when you think you've solved one problem, another problem pops up. And just when you think you've seen the craziest thing, the next craziest thing happens. So. But Dr. it's absolutely a team game, right? We, oh, we, for sure. The most important thing with when you're dealing with something as complex as patient flow is you have to work together. And I oh, think... Yes. Our team at BCHS, we really do focus on collaborating, and I think that is one of the reasons that we're able to sort of make it through the day because we we rely on each other to to do that work. Rudy and uh, Shannon, you do incredible work, and it's just not you two people that are here in the studio. Mm-hmm. It's it's thousands more back at mm-hmm. the the hospital, even the volunteers who are helping and Absolutely. doing their part to contribute to the patient care. But uh, Rudy, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. But you cannot go without <laughs> us having our traditional uh, this and that, a round of this and that, where we get to ask some questions. And uh, Dr. Goyle and uh, Shannon have not seen these questions in advance, oh, and uh, we'll see what. <laughs> and they've agreed to this. <laughs> let's uh, let's begin. Both of you. It's an easy one. Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons, Tim Hortons wins. That's all we've got it, Brent. Uh, yeah. Brent for general. <laughs> Brent for general. <laughs> okay, it's the new year. Won't ask you to be specific. Uh, Rudy, any New Year's resolutions or do you not believe in them? I do believe in them. Uh, it's pretty cliche, but but honestly, my resolution is to get to, get to the gym more this year. It's a good one. Yeah. Shannon? I don't know if this is appropriate to say, but mine was to swear less. <laughs> <laughs> that it's a is a really good one. I should take that <laughs> to one. To swear less. Uh, how yeah. long did, no, I won't go there. How I'm long that one okay. last? Oh, I haven't good. had a single cuss word on this podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> this almost sounds like an oxymoron. Let's assume you get some free time. Rudy, Where? what would you like to do in some free time? Any hobbies? Uh, I like to play squash when I can. It's been a long time since I've, uh, been able to, but that's one of my favorite things to do. I like to read. I like to uh, travel when I can, spend time with my girlfriend, with my dog. Um, those are all sort of the things I like to do. Any particular author that you enjoy or a book you're currently reading? Uh, I'm reading a book uh, called uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, it's He's a, a lawyer in the States who defends uh, people who have been wrongfully accused of murder and are on death row, and uh, he works to free them. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Yeah, fascinating person. Certainly. Yeah. Shannon, any hobbies? Uh, very similar to Dr. Goyle, actually. I love to travel. I spend a lot of time with my dog. She's my fur baby. Um, I enjoy spending time with family, reading. Where do you uh, travel to? Or where have you been? Uh, oh, all over the place. Thailand, Italy, France, um, all over the Caribbean. Cuba is actually one of my most favorite places to go. Any place where you don't have to count hospital beds. And, <laughs> and in Cuba, mind. you don't have access to wireless internet as much, so you have to shut off. You, you have no choice. Forced to unplug. <laughs> forced to forced, unplug. Yeah. Do you enjoy hot breakfast or cold breakfast? Or do you have breakfast? I don't, I'm not a breakfast person. I have a, a cup of tea. I'm a tea drinker. I drink tea all throughout the day, so I usually start with a cup of tea, maybe a piece of fruit or something, but not a big breakfast. Same. Yeah. I actually skip breakfast. I have coffee, and that's about it. Into work. That's right. What's worse, doing laundry or doing the dishes? Laundry. Laundry, oh. for sure. Yeah, Unanimous <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I know you like to get away on vacation. Uh, Dr. Goyle, where is your next vacation? Do you have one booked or ready to go? Don't have one booked. Uh, I was in the Dominican Republic about two months ago, which was wonderful. Uh, I'd like to go to Europe, I think, for my next trip, maybe this summer. We'll see. We'll see what the bed situation is like. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon? 
Uh, actually, Ireland in May is uh, next on my docket. I decided not to do a hot uh, vacation in the winter to, you know, extend, have an extended vacation in, in Ireland in May. So looking forward to that. Shannon, if you weren't a pioneer in patient flow in hospitals in Ontario, what would you be doing? Where would you be working? What career, perhaps? I know you wanted to be in healthcare since you were 14, but it, if you weren't, if you could just sort of sprinkle some magic dust, what would you think you would like to do? Oh, that's such a good question. It would probably be something on a beach somewhere, scooping ice cream or I don't know, just something very basic. No stress, just, you know, hanging out in the sunshine. It would definitely not be anywhere where there's snow in the winter. That's for sure. Dr. Goyle, if you weren't a physician. Yeah, good question. Uh, I think I'd probably be doing something like engineering. Uh, I've enjoyed way, math. Way better oh, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of prefer <laughs> yours, Shannon. <laughs> that was my, the other thing I considered doing when I was in high school. So, you know, that's interesting. And that's, will be, I'm sure a topic at some future podcast. The vast majority of physicians I've met throughout my life working in healthcare, you ask them about what they would be doing if it wasn't a doctor and if money, you know, if, if they wanted to have a professional career frequently, it's uh it's, it's being an engineer hmm. and uh, yeah, a lot of overlap. I think. A lot yeah. of overlap. Mm-hmm. We've discussed that certainly. This concludes episode number seven of Hospital Insider, the podcast. This is Gary Chalk. Our guests have been Dr. Rudy Goyle, chief of hospital-based medicine, and also Shannon Nelson, the patient flow coordinator at the Brant Community Healthcare System. Uh, Rudy and Shannon, we thank you for the time. I know that you work incredibly hard, and I know right after this podcast, you're going right back to the hospital. <laughs> and instead of leaving at 9 tonight, you'll probably be leaving at 10.30. But thank you for taking time and for all that you do for all the patients throughout Brantford and Brant County at the Willett and at the Brantford General Hospitals. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Please join me in another two weeks from time. And from now, that'll be on Thursday, February 13th. It'll be episode number eight of Hospital Insider, the podcast. In the meantime, stay well so you can do good. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Hospital Insider, the podcast, a presentation of the Brandt Community Healthcare System. Hospital Insider, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting forum. Please press subscribe and you will always be up to date with Hospital Insider, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please pass it along to your friends. Encourage them to subscribe as well. It's appreciated. In two weeks, we'll return with a new episode of Hospital Insider, the podcast with Gary Chalk. Thank you for listening. I'm Sandy Bishop.